I can see it. All right. Um, this is going to be part of a two-part thing that was a two-hour workshop up in Topeka. And uh, so we're going to do a half today and then hopefully a second half next Saturday. Okay, this uh, is the, to do with the development of the expression of the church's doctrine about Christ. The church's understanding of Christ did not uh, progress over time. It's essentially, you know, it came from the time of when Christ came to the apostles. <clears throat> the basic understanding is there, but rather what happens is there's certain attempts to explain who Christ is that lead off into certain errors, and the church kind of, over time, you know, sort of uh, bars those errors and kind of tries to keep us within the, the tradition. The basic thing that the church knows about Christ and knew you know, from the beginning is that Christ is the Son of God and that he became man and died and rose from the dead for us. And that really doesn't, that's not something that changes. That's what our, our faith is. So he's divine, but also acted in this world for our sake as as a, as a man, human. Now the the all this this a uh, lot of discussions and you know, a lot of different writers that we'll look at. Uh, what you're on your sheet mainly are um, the texts from a lot of the slides that I used, and these are uh, some notes, but a lot of translations of kind of edited selections from the writings of various writers. Well, why do we why do you have a big thick packet there? You know, I just summed it up in sort of one sentence. Well, because the problem is, how do we say that it's the Son of God who does this, and at the same time, not uh, you know, not to deny His divinity, and at the same time, not to deny His humanity? And there were sort of different explanations offered as to how to do that. That led in, uh, you know, the implications were not good, and that's why we ended up with all these these uh, church councils to resolve this. Okay, the initial problem, the councils I'm going to focus on are the third, fourth, and fifth, which are kind of the uh, main Christological councils. The sixth uh, council also deals with Christology, but with a sort of separate issue, and it's it's a little more complex. So I'm kind of leaving that out of this series. Uh, the the questions, though, really orig originate earlier, uh, particularly with Arianism uh, and the specifically the attacks of there was Constantine became Christian, but then one of his nephews, the uh, Emperor Julian, he went back to paganism and called Julian the apostate for that reason, <coughs> and he was arguing against. Nephew or cousin or something like that. I, I posited the relationship, but he, um, you know, was attacking Christianity, and in some ways his arguments are very similar to Arius's arguments. Arius uh, was a Christian priest, but he he believed that, and he didn't disbelieve in Christ or in a sense of the divinity of Christ. But what he thought was that the divinity of Christ could not be the same as the Father's divinity. That he was, if whatever he was, that he was lower than God the Father. So <coughs> Arius um, 
you know, is, is in that sense, be, be kind of a, her, a great heretic that we would think historically of Arianism as being one of the things that Christianity is not, that one of the things we affirm is the full divinity of Christ. But the, ar the arguments that Arius used were that, well, when we look at Christ, here he is, he's being born, he gets tired, he's hungry, uh, you know, he's suffering, he dies on the cross, and that God doesn't do any of those things, that those things are all incompatible with divinity. And so, therefore, it's impossible for Christ to be God. So he must be something else, a little lower. Or in Julian's case, who's anti-Christian, because, well, obviously he's not God at all. He's just, just some human being who was uh, erring by going against paganism. <coughs> now, the church uh, rejected these you know, general positions, but there was some sort of scholarly uh, bishops and theologians who tried to answer these arguments with uh, some kind of uh, philosophical explanations of how how could it be that this is not really uh, disproving the divinity of Christ. And to some extent, um, going back earlier, there's a a Christian theologian known as Origen, who was teaching around 200, and he, in some ways, uh, kind of uh, foreshadowed an attempt to sort of solve that problem. He had the idea that <coughs> that everybody, uh, all people and angels and demons were all pre-created, were in fact existed eternally as immaterial souls, and that the uh, material world was created when those souls fell away from God and as they fell away they kind of fell into matter. Uh, Arjun, as you might guess, is sort of related to Gnosticism in some ways, although he was an anti-Gnostic, he also was partly influenced. But he felt that um, he believed in the Trinity, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, but he thought that one of those unfallen souls was the soul of Christ. So to him, he had, uh, you know, the divine Logos, the second person of the Trinity, but he also had this unfallen soul that existed eternally, who was the, the soul of Christ. So <clears throat> he gets both the divinity and the humanity, but in fact, what he's doing is he's creating, uh, essentially saying that, that Jesus Christ is two separate people. Uh, this unfallen person who was uh, existing eternally and the Logos who now has sort of been conjoined to him. This uh, idea and was kind of similar to the one that was picked up by uh, some of the bishops that lived around Antioch. <coughs> the earlier, uh, early famous person who was this is uh, Diodore of Tarsus and actually each of um, the slides I look at, you know, is on your sheet. If you just kind of work your way down, you'll see the Diodor. There's a couple for him. <coughs> and I put some information on here that doesn't directly relate to Christology, but because I, I want you to realize, we often think of the, you know, these heretics. Well, who are these strange people? You know, we have to kind of memorize their names, and you know, they have these odd ideas, and sort of like, you know, why are we doing this? It's kind of like learning the periodic table or something that you have to know it. Uh, but but actually, um, they're not just 
they weren't just any old people that had to have, to have strange ideas, but these were actually, uh, in fact, famous Christians at the time. They were devout people. They were uh, in, important people, actually. And Diodor was one of the ones, uh, in fact, all, a number of the people we're going to be talking about were very important um, defenders of Christianity against Arianism. And, and in some cases also against Julian the Apostate, their opponents of Julian. In this case, he was uh, someone who was supporting uh, Patriarch Meletius at the time of the Arians. He was a friend of the Basil the Great and the Cappadocian Fathers, Gregory the Theologian, and so on. So they were. Uh, he was in, involved in the in the Second Ecumenical Council. So he was one of the fathers of that council in 381. But he was trying to. You know, he was busy working against Arianism. So his motives, uh, you know, were actually pious motives. He was trying to defend the church, but he was trying to do it on a philosophical basis. And in a sense, uh, the danger, you know, heresy often comes in <coughs> where we depart from, because the tradition of the church is not really based on philosophy, philosophical categories. It's, it's a tradition of a truthful reality that the church experiences. And it doesn't it doesn't conform to uh, rational you know our kind of rational systems, but we in order to try to explain it or to defend it we like to use our rational systems and sometimes we can do that and that works out okay. Other times when we try to make the truth that's ex essentially a, a kind of experienced truth fit in we in some ways start to distort uh, that tradition. So. What he did was he uh, developed the idea that, you know, which is that you see already in Origen, that that Arius and Jul Emperor Julian are wrong because, you know, all that suffering and, uh, you know, walking around, getting tired, uh, eating meals, that was all done by the son of Mary. And that, um, you know, that has really nothing to do with the Logos who is divine and doesn't, you know, doesn't participate in any of that. He's conjoined or united to that son of Mary, to, united to Christ, but in a way that um, is more like uh, they, they actually the image that gets the they this group uses is the image of marriage. You know that man and woman are joined together. We think of them as one, but they're really still two people. Okay, and so. Christ's human suffering does not affect the Son of God and his divinity at all. Now, not a lot of uh, of the writings of Diodor are left, but uh, there's I uh, managed to find a, a fragment where he says here, uh, which hmm, I think it should be on your sheet. We will not allow ourselves to be misled into believing that the that the God Logos suffered. It was rather the child of Mary, to whom sonship was granted, the temple of the god Logos, who was destroyed by the Jews, from which, however, the one who lived therein arose. So, now it's, this is the, kind of introduce what we'll see is an interesting thing, because uh, we would say that, well, of course, the divinity, the divine nature didn't suffer. But because these people had the idea, particularly, and will continue to, to keep support the idea till today, that that the divine 
nature, that the divine person can only exist through his divine nature, and that if there's humanity, there has to be a human person who's experiencing humanity. It's a philosophical uh, premise that the this uh, Nestorian school of thought will hold. And as you see it here, in a sense, so he's saying it's, basically it's impious <coughs> to think that that the Logos suffered, and we're not going to allow that, you know, that we would say definitely it's someone else. But, of course, the problem is that, uh, you know, then we are, we are going against some basic part of our Christian tradition, which is that the Son of God died for us. Because if you, if you follow this sort of philosophical way out of the Arian dilemma, you've now created a new dilemma. It's no longer the Son of God who's dying on our behalf. To Apollinaris was another uh, bishop living at this time. He was also a defender of the church against, uh, particularly a defender of the Council of Nicaea against the Arians. He was a teacher of St. Jerome. He was living in Antioch, an ally with Basil the Great, and con- kind of connected to the old Nicaeans. But he, and he recognized the danger in this line of thinking you know, quickly, and he also seems like he's also seeing the danger in, uh, you know, sort of the originist line of thinking of of, create, of this Christ as a separate soul, eternally existing soul person, and so he thinks, well, how am I going to, how are we going to escape from that problem of having a soul person, you know, a Christian person who is one of these eternal souls and a Logos essentially being two people that are now being joined together. And what he does, he said, well, what we're going to do is get rid of that soul, get rid of that Christ soul, and we're going to say that that really in in Christ, you know, there's body and soul, we all have bodies and soul, but that in Christ, it's the Logos who is the soul of Christ. So partly uh, the problem here is just how are you using these terms? What exactly is a soul? And so in Origen's case, the soul is a, a person, right? But so he, if, if you mean, a, if, a, if a soul means a person, then there can't be some other person. So he says, well, the, lo- in the logos is that person in Christ. But in a way, that, of course, the soul is also a part of a human, human existence. It's a way we like we have bodies, but we also we exist through our bodies. But we also exist through our souls. So, in w- he solves one problem, this the problem of creating of two two different people in Christ. But by getting rid of that second person, in this way, by saying there's no no hum- separate human soul, he's also removing the soul from the humanity of Christ. And so very quickly. Um, He's attacked at the time of the Second Ecumenical Council by uh, Athanasius and some of the other church fathers who realize that his solution is also not a solution. Do you have a question? Does that mean uh, he, he's saying there's a divine soul inside a human body, basically? Yes. He's saying, and it's, yes, it's because in the way that Origen's looking at it, essentially he's using the word soul, well, actually he's using nous, um, that that is, in a sense, because Origen is saying that, that everybody, whether you're an angel or a person, that all persons were these these souls. And 
So he's trying to get rid of that extra person, but in terms of our anthropology, every person is body and soul. So all of a sudden, you know, you're creating a humanity that's no longer bought both body and soul that way. So that's and that's the problem that the other church fathers uh, saw with this. Now, the um, there was and actually in the controversies around. Uh, the t time of the before, right before the Second Ecumenical Council, both of these the ideas of both of these uh, early Christian bishops were debated back, and we'll we'll read about that in uh, the next few slides. But the uh, Apollinaris, uh, the condemnation of Apollinaris got a lot more uh, sort of publicity, and in fact, in a way that kind of discredited this in, in a way the whole line of trying to avoid. Uh, trying to avoid the duality in Christ and, and to sense sort of set us up for the next set of problems. Uh, his writings were largely destroyed, but what happened is his disciples decided to preserve his writings by hiding them under the names of earlier church fathers. And so we have actually a fair amount of fragments of, of Apollinaris still existing because they, people figured out, well, which were these uh, fake ones that were put under other people's writings. But one of the uh, the phrases in these pseudepigrapha, kind of uh, fake, you know, sort of falsely ascribed writings, was a phrase that Apollinaris had come up with saying one incarnate, that Christ had one incarnate nature. Because again, he's trying to emphasize that there's just one person here, so he uses this phrase, one incarnate nature. Uh, Saint Cyril will later read that and uh, this uh, was put under the name of Athanasius and will believe that this is actually a phrase used by Athanasius and will use it himself and this will cause some controversy because people will say ah well you're just introducing the heresy of Apollinaris here but what we'll find out is that in fact uh, Cyril's able to use this phrase in an orthodox manner and ultimately the church will accept it if properly under, in a way that properly defined or understood was there a question? If you go to the, the next uh, one, Athanasius and, and Gregory Nazianzus, these are uh, important Orthodox fathers uh, fighting, who are fighting against Arianism that lived at the same time as the ones we just mentioned, Diodor, Tarsus, and Apollinaris. And, and they both are responding to this conflict, because the conflict is going on not on the Arian side, because we're all fighting against, all four of them are fighting against Arians. But on the Orthodox side, we have, you know, the followers of Diodor, the followers of Apollinaris, each kind of battling Apollinaris. You know, Diodor is saying, well, well, we need to say, we need to divide Christ up in order to answer the Arians. And the people of Apollinaris say, well, we need to get rid of this human soul in order to keep one Christ. And so the. Uh, the bulk of the Orthodox side, though, said, well, realized that this was that these were both problematic ways of going about it. And uh, first, there was a uh, church council in in Alexandria in, in 362 that, among other things, was dealing with other issues, uh, particularly uh, the terminologies, Basil's terminology of three hypostases for the Trinity. But it also dealt with this question, and it's trying to sort of seeing that both of these you know, sides are people who are anti-Aryan and trying to bring them back uh, into the mainstream of, of Christian tradition. 
he, he writes uh, Athanasius' uh, response to this, his letter uh, of Epictetus, to Epictetus, sorry, uh, becomes kind of, in a sense, what, almost a canonical document for the church in kind of what is the church's tradition about Christ. And, and it tries, it rejects uh, both, both positions, but the uh, one phrase I took from there, who are they who have been so reckless as to say that Christ who suffered in the flesh and was crucified is not Lord, Savior, God, and Son of the Father? So the point he's making here is that to be a Christian, we have to say that who's the one doing all this? That has to be the Son of God. We can't, we can't have some other person being the one who's bringing about our salvation. And then a little later, uh, Gregory Nazianzus uh, writes, she wrote two letters to someone named Cladonius, a, a priest. But uh, in one of these, there's there's two phrases. He's answering in the first. He's answering uh, Diodor, Christ is one thing and another thing. So there's humanity and divinity as as things, as natures or essences. But but not one person and another person. So there's so there's two natures, but not two persons. So he's trying to there respond to Diodor, and he's also introduces this phrase, Mary is Theotokos, meaning the mother of God. So what does that, that mean? <coughs> that the person being born, the, the son of Mary, is not some other person than the son of God. <coughs> but it is the son of God himself. It is the divine Logos himself who is being born of Mary who's the, the subject of the birth and therefore the subject of all the actions of Christ's life. Now, in response to the Apollinarian um, idea of taking out the soul, he has this, again, famous phrase, what is not assumed is not healed. <clears throat> so in other words, the human nature that Christ assumes has to be like our human nature, has to be a full human nature. And the problem that, you know, it seems to be uh, suggested by Apollinaris's idea of of, reject, of making the logos the soul is that it it talk it seems to be saying well that Christ is not fully human but is only uh, a human body uh, that so what uh, the church wants to preserve what if these fathers are trying to preserve is the full humanity of Christ not just not just a physical body inhabited by the the Son of God. Okay. Um, so, what he's trying to do here is, you know, to sort of keep the human, the human soul, but not, but not have it be a separate human person. And that's, that's sort of the, the tricky part that we're trying to get to, uh, in these explanations. Again, uh, the letter of Cladonius to Clodo Gregory, the, the theologian's letter, letter to Cladonius becomes one of what's again the canonical documents. These two are accepted in the future councils as sort of uh, defining texts of what is the church's tradition about who Christ is. Okay. After this um, period goes by, we're now, uh, the, three, the second ecumenical council is 381. The ideas of Diodor and Apollinaris have both been pretty much condemned by the church. But uh, Diodor has a disciple 
named Theodore, who becomes the bishop of Mopsuestia, another town over by Antioch. <coughs> and in fact, that he lived in Antioch. Um, he's a fellow student of John Chrysostom. But he, what he does is he, he basically he's uh, also kind of a philosophical person. He believes that Theodore is essentially correct, but he realizes that just to kind of come out and say, well, there are two different people, you know, that that doesn't sound good either. So he's trying to incorporate the criticisms of Theodore into sort of let's say a revised, a revised Theodorian idea, and. He's also uh, he's writing against you know Eunomius was a follower of Arius so he's also an anti-Arian author and he's an anti also writing against Apollinaris whom he uh, sees as well as everybody did uh, disagreed with him but in a way perhaps even more because he still really has the idea of two full people so what he's doing is he's trying to say he's still saying really that there's two people but he's trying to modify it by saying well, that somehow in Christ the union, you know, we can kind of consider them one son. That there's, we won't say because uh, Theodore bit pretty uh, upfront, you know, well there's the son of Mary, that's one person and then there's the son of God, that's another person. Whereas here he's trying to say, well, we kind of look at them as one person. But, but underlying this, it's still, he's still really teaching two people. Uh, there's lately been kind of controversy about his uh, his writings because <coughs> we have there's there are fragments surviving in Greek, and then there are Syriac texts which have lately been translated, and the people a lot you know there's been a, a general move towards uh, kind of support of Nestorian of Nestorius and and Theodore by more modern authors. It's kind of a twofold. Uh, Movement. On the one hand, they're saying, well, these Syriac texts are not as, you know, blatantly heretical as the Greek texts. So maybe the Greek texts were falsified by Cyril, you know, to make these guys look bad. And then now that we're seeing the Syriac texts, which are coming from the uh, Church of Persia, which became Nestorian, that, you know, maybe they really didn't, uh, weren't quite as heretical as we as we thought. There's um, two things. One is that translations, you know, sometimes do actually tend to alter texts to make them more orthodox, as we see with Rufinus's translation of Origen. The second is that when you look at the Syriac texts, you still basically see the same problem. That there's really, and actually in the, the Church of Persia, which has preserved them, um, you know, they're still pretty much saying it's, it's two people. That it would be impious to say that the Son of God could be suffering on the cross or doing any of the other human things. So uh, his main point okay, in the Catechal Lectures and Commentary on John, uh, which are from the Syriac side, presents a two-subject Christology, but still try, but tries to offset that with saying that there's a union into one prosopon. A prosopon in, in Greek terminology, there's two words for person. A prosopon refers to the outward appearance of a person. And then hypostasis refers to sort of the ontological reality of a person. So uh, Nestorius and Theodore both will talk about the prosopon of union, which is the appearance of a single person, appearance of a single person um, that comes about when the Logos and the Son of Mary are united. Uh, 
So this is a it's a, a union, but uh, in a sense, they're really talking about three people, two two sort of ontological people, people that and and a, and then one sort of apparent person that's visible to us. The uh, the main kind of sticking point for uh, Theodore and for for Mysterious also is although it's all the humanity, all the human actions of Christ, it's particularly the suffering that they because they cannot separate um, the the divine person, the logos, the Son of God, from his divinity. Therefore, they they think it would be sort of blasphemous to say that the Son of God could could suffer because that that's a hu- human thing and they see that as incompatible with divinity. So therefore, it's not only incompatible with his divine nature, but it's also incompatible with his divine person. And this is still uh, the position of the Nestorian Church today. They reject that. Yes, this is okay. All right. um, yes. Um, you alluded to that, um, just in terms of translations, but mm-hmm. you get this sense of this attempt to rehabilitate Nestorians. Yes, yes. There's there's another side to that actually. What do you think motivates that? Well, I think it's it has to in. Uh, oh, I was, so who's, who made this suggestion? Uh, um, some I just was reading somebody who suggested this, but I can't remember who it was now. But there's, but I think it's a good suggestion, which is that, okay, traditional Christians um, very much believe in the divinity of Christ, and so we, uh, you know, that we reject a theology which separates Christ from the divine Son of God. In the, in the late 19, the 19th, 20th centuries, um, the emergence of liberal Christianity as a perhaps sort of dominant in the universities, um, it's a type of Christianity which does not emphasize the divinity of Christ and in some ways likes to see Christ as a you know, human being. Um, and so to them, the, these... Uh, a Christology which puts some distance between Jesus and the divine and the Son of and between and God in general uh, fits in more with a liberal outlook, and that's that uh, maybe why that uh, they've gotten more has gotten more traction because you know, they because he seems a much more sympathetic character. Also, the other side is that uh, these were all very educated philosophical people and. Um, to say later, one of the other historian figures, you know, he's he's a professor of Aristotelian philosophy, and so this is a very learned approach. It's a it's a very uh, scholastic approach. Whereas, uh, you know, when you look at Cyril, I mean, it's a kind of very messy approach. He doesn't have a clear clear vocabulary or anything, and he's mostly just going on intuition in a way. And that <coughs> so you have uh, a religious institution that intuition that most modern people don't accept, which is the divinity of Christ, and then you have these learned people who are putting out a, a, a theology that seems more suitable to, you know, more in keeping with the modern thinking, I think that's probably why. Um, but, it, you know, it certainly seems that even those who are, def- uh, you know, in, in the case of the historians, you know, even in defending, er- you know, Nestorius and Theodore, they're defending it as teaching, as teaching this very thing that they're dividing this dividing Christ into two people. But they think, well, that's good, and 
and unfortunately to be you know we have to reject it because it's it's really a rejection of the of the basic tradition of what, who, what Christianity and who Christ is. What, is that? Yeah, it's just it's, you don't okay. see. Uh, I remember a few books many years ago trying to kind of uh, look at things from Arius's perspective. Yes, right. That didn't last long. But yeah. This. And do you think maybe there's because Nestorius we ended up with more of his writing? Yes, there was a. Um, it's yes, partly there was a revival of interest when the um, translations from Syriac were being done, and so. Um, Theodore Mopsuestia, for instance, a lot of his writings. We have some of the Bazaar of Heraclides, uh, and I think maybe one other from Nestorius that came about. Of course, the Nestorian writings were written at the end of his life. Um, you know, in a sense, kind of where everything has happened, and now he's trying to sort of justify himself retroactively. And so he adopts a lot of the terminology that the church did and, and tries to respond to the crit criticisms. But what's curious is that, you know, when you try to look at what does he mean by the, the terminology, you know, he's using our terminology, so does that mean, well, he was really unfairly uh, condemned? But when you look what's underlying his thinking, he's still, he's still really thinking the same way. You know, it's, it's not, he's not given up on the idea that, this, that the Son of God himself, the divine person, cannot be the, the actor in the human actions. And so, as long as you're doing that, you know, I can't see how you can kind of call it Christian. Is there any other questions? Okay. Um, the next uh, page is the, the Theodore Mopsostia texts. And I just took some of the quotes from him. But uh, I see we're <coughs> moving a little slowly. So I. Um, okay, well, just I'll just pick a couple. When we speak of the nature of God, the word as complete and his person as complete, for there is no hypostasis without its person. Moreover, the nature of the man is complete and likewise his person. But when we consider the union, then we speak of one person. So, uh, kind of again, this, uh, we'll see it later in another, there's a sort of philosophical commitment to the idea that each nature has to have be expressed in its own person. That you can't have a human nature without a human person. You can't have a divine nature without a divine person. So, therefore, if Christ is both human and divine, there's got to be a human person and a divine person. And that's just a philosophical given for these authors. And that's, unfortunately, it's, it's a... Uh, you know, it's just a victory of philosophy over over Christian tradition. That's the major problem they have. And then, but then he says, but when we consider the union, we speak of one person. And this is where Theodore, in a sense, tries to get some cover, and where Nestorius later will try to, you know, justify himself. But it's a it's a relative, you know, that one person, one prosopon that he's talking about is. Um, is is an appearance, not a not a reality, not a not a um, spiritual reality, but it's a convergence. Um, down on uh, Paul is speaking of Christ, who is from the Jews according to the flesh, and that he's naming neither of the of the nature of the Godhead of the only begotten, nor God the Word, who is from the beginning. 
and this is the problem too. I mean, it's one thing to say <coughs> when something is something to, involving the human nature is happening in uh, in the Bible that well, this is a, this is referring to Christ's humanity, and that well, okay, so these whatever the human actions were there, uh, that Christ being from the Jews is obviously not from the Jews in his divine nature, but then he goes further because we would agree with that that it's not uh, that in his divinity doesn't come from from descent from the Jews but but his uh, but when he goes on to say that nor God the word can be uh, descended from the Jews so that means that God the word cannot be the person born of Mary and once you do that well then you as I said you, you kind of separated out uh, separated the son of God away from from Christ Jesus uh Okay. The, well, just the, I'll take go to the last um, part of that. The, the Godhead was separated from the one who was suffering in the trial of death, because it was impossible for him to taste the trial of death. He himself was not tried with the trial of death, but was he was near to him. So, uh, again, it's it's not the Son of God who's doing who's dying on the cross. It's some other person, and he's going over there and being with that person. But he's not that per- can't be that person himself again, because of the idea that that would be blasphemously connecting a divine divine person and and his nature with the, with the uh, with death. This is uh, followed by Nestorius, who becomes patriarch of Constantinople. He's a uh, disciple of Theodore of Mopsuestia. He's also a very learned person and and uh, feels very superior to. Uh, the the people who will be disagreeing with him because he's very well educated and he has this philosophical training and and has kind of uh, completely accepted you know Theodore's presuppositions here. So when he gets to Constantinople, he's brought up from Antioch to Constantinople in, in 428, and he starts hearing people calling Christ, uh, Mary Theotokos, as does Gregory the theologian, and says, well, that's not right because so, because the person being born of Mary is not is not the Son of God, so he said, "Well, let's call her." He, he, was, he does say somewhere that, "Well, we could we could just as well be, call her Anthropotokos because it's a man who's being born of her." But he said, "Well, let's call her Christotokos because that would be sort of a compromise, you know. He's because Christ is somehow combining uh, the Son of God and Mary, and the Son of and the human Son, <coughs> and." But he doesn't, you know, that. so that's bad enough. He kind of, in a way, he's reject, again rejecting the incarnation of the, of the Son of God. But he also begins persecuting the people who are disagreeing with him and uh, has uh, some violence and deposing them. And this is where uh, Cyril of Alexandria gets involved and starts writing letters to him to try to convince him not to do this. And he starts writing back... Um, Telling Cyril he doesn't know what he's talking about, and, and actually, uh, it, he asks for a church council. He asks the emperor to let him have a church council to condemn Cyril, <coughs> in order to sort of get rid of his criticisms. And it's interesting that the council that Nestorius asks for is ultimately the council that condemns him, because uh, he sort of felt that being the you know the emperor's bishop that he would be able to control events, but. What happens, and actually, the emperor was supporting him. You know, uh, for those who say that, well, Nestorius was unfairly treated, but 
the emperor always backing him right to the end, but the but the church, uh, again, in a sort of intuitive way, you know, had this basic understanding of who who's Christ. Well, he's the Son of God, and so uh, you know, even the person who's the patriarch of Constantinople, you know, one of the most exalted positions in a way, uh, you know, that that doesn't really change anything. When when you contradict the church's faith, then the church has to reject that. And of course, it, it involves some struggle, but uh, fortunately, happened with just within a few years at, at, the, at this council. Um, okay, the Council of Ephesus, which is our third ecumenical council in 431. Uh, there are some disagreements there. I guess I should uh, say that there was so a Cyril these letters, and then uh, Cyril's letters. As I said, the terminology is sometimes unclear. So there were people on Nestorius' side who felt that. Um, Cyril's terminology was too close to that of Apollinaris and so they were um, you know Nestorius and them were criticizing kind of wanting to condemn him as an Apollinarian and so when the council first meets there's actually it splits the majority uh, supporting uh, Cyril and condemning Nestorius for dividing Christ into two people and then a small group uh, condemning Cyril but then in, in afterwards, the, the two halves kind of meet together, and the part that was originally condemning Cyril uh, ultimately gives up their attacks on him, realizing that he's actually not supporting Apollinarism, and they also um, realize that Nestorius is, in fact, you know, teaching error, so they, they agree to condemn him. And here's some of the extracts from Nestorius's writings. Oh no, sorry. Uh, this is I'm sorry. This is Cyril's letter to Nestorius. That's um, the next one will be Nestorius. This is uh, his second letter, and this is one that uh, that at the Council of, of Ephesus we consider Cyril's uh, letters to be particularly this this one and the third as uh, in a sense canonical. They were considered considered to be representing authentically the tradition of the church. We affirm that the Logos united to himself according to hypostasis, that is, according to person, a flesh ensouled with a rational soul, so not what Apollonius is teaching, and became man. And he was called the son of man, not by mere favor or goodwill, nor as in the assumption of a mere appearance or prosopon, as the story, the Theodore is talking about that they, they have one, there's two people, but there's one appearance. <coughs> so we're, not, we're saying... This is not because of the, the union is not just an appearance. <clears throat> and that on the one hand, the natures that came together to form a true unity are different, the humanity and divinity, but from them <clears throat> is one Christ, the Son, not that the differences are taken away through the union. Thus it is said, he was born and existed before the ages from the Father and was born according to the flesh from a woman. And this is a will become, this phrase of Cyril's will become a very important, uh, let's say, sort of uh, formula for kind of expressing the orthodox teaching versus Cyril. It's, it's the formula of two nativities. In other words, that, that the Logos, or the Son of God, is born twice. He's, so instead of two people with two births, one, we have one person being born two times, the first time he is born eternally from the Father, 
<clears throat> and then second, he's born in time from Mary. So that the, a, a divine birth of, through his human nat- a divine nature and a human birth in time from his human nature. And that, that phrase will reappear in almost all future Orthodox uh, formulas as uh, expressions of who Christ is it, because it, it completely contradicts what the Nestorian side is uh, saying. <coughs> Thus we say <coughs> that he suffered and resurrected not as if God the Logos suffered blows, piercing of nails, or other wounds in his own nature, for divinity is impassable because it is also bodiless. So, okay, so the divine nature is not suffering, but, but he is suffering. But since what became his own body suffered these things, again he is said to suffer himself on our behalf, for the impassable one suffered in the body. And that's a very interesting phrase. So because we say, well, how can the impassable divinity suffer? Well, it's not the impassable divine nature that's suffering, but the impassable person is suffering. Because what, what ultimately, um, and, the, and the terminology for explaining this doesn't really kind of come around for another hundred years, but <coughs> what we kind of are ultimately saying is that the what, and what the historians refuse to say is that is that the divine person is ultim- is able to transcend his own nature, just as uh, St. Maximus will later talk about us <coughs> transcending our human natures when we come into communion with God. In the same way, uh, Christ. The Son of God transcends the limits of His divinity because divinity has limits. Divinity can't suffer. Okay, and that's what Nestorius is saying. Divinity can't suffer, therefore, the divine, the Son of God, can't be suffering. But we'd say no, divinity can't suffer, but He He exceeds the limit of divinity. He goes beyond His own divinity through the incarnation to be able to do things that the divine nature can't do. And so it's this. I mean, essentially, what we're saying is that the what the what the Christian tradition is telling us is that the Son of God is doing something that, philosophically speaking, can't be done. And what Nestorius is saying, well, you have to stay within the limits of of this Aristotelian philosophy, and that you know the div- divine persons can't do anything that divine natures can't do. And we're saying, well, it doesn't make sense philosophically, but that's what that's what our tradition is. That's what what Christ gave us to understand through the apostles. And so, ultimately, the Christian tradition has to supersede philosophy, has to supersede the limits of our philosophical categories. And I realize, uh, do you have a question? Or? Is, that, is, that, is that the orthodox position? Mm-hmm. Yes, right, that we... That, no, no, the divine person, the divine person. Su- supersedes that his nature, that he's acting, he's, that divine person, the Logos, uh, the Son of God, did things that the divine nature doesn't do, is not capable of doing, being born, getting hungry, doing those things, and, but that's, uh, it's a mir- it's a mystery, a miracle, but that's what he did. And it's getting near six. So, therefore, we will be able to exceed our own nature too. That's right. That's right. That our that that and in fact we do that now in in prayer when we come to know God. Um, 
that's what the, uh, Gregory of Nyssa in the, in the Life of Moses, he's talking about <laughs> when you come to come up to the divine darkness <coughs> that, you know, we've reached the limits of human mm-hmm. understanding, but then we go beyond that. And that's where we see, meet God, is, is outside of our nature through the communion with the divine grace, divine with, with God himself. And it 